All right. Well, I just got a video done yesterday, so I figured I'm on a roll. Let's go ahead and do more. Um, I, I, I listened a lot further. I figured I would get more to like hearish in the, the video I just shot, but uh, there's just a lot to say when he's talking about um, confession in the Eucharist and a lot of misunderstandings and everything else. So um, as always, again, if you like this series, please feel free to, to leave me a like down below. Uh, let me, uh, give me give me a comment if you have any questions. Obviously, feel free to subscribe to the channel. Uh, gives me that little dopamine boost that makes me uh, feel really good and, and, and want to keep doing this. Um, where you are responding to uh, Pastor Mike Winger, uh, talking about, uh, he's going to wrap up the discussion of the sacraments here uh, with a discussion of uh, confirmation and then um, marriage and the priesthood. So uh, there's not going to be a whole lot to say about these. So I may or may not make it just a, a short little snippet, but we'll see here goes. Uh, again, I'm going to listen to him on 1.5 speed um, so that if you, we, we can just get through it faster. Obviously, if you're listening to me on, on increased speed, it shouldn't be too ridiculous um, depending. So um, that being said, let's jump into it. Well, the, the fourth sacrament is called Confirmation. And uh, this occurs when a bishop, a kid comes, you know, coming of age, and the bishop lays his hands on the head of the Catholic, signifying that they are coming of age. And that's considered one of the sacraments. Um, do you have to do... Con okay, first off, it's not. <laughs> it is not a, a coming of age thing. Uh, never has been. Um, and it, it, it is oftentimes treated that way in the modern world. Um, but confirmation is not a matter of coming of age. Confirmation is um, the, uh, the, the laying out of hands by the bishop, uh, the, the episcopoi, the overseer, uh, or one that he's given authority to, one of his priests, the presbyteroi, um, and it imparts the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a real way. Um, you know, different people have different gifts. You know, some people, uh, the gifts are far more manifest than others, uh, but this is utterly biblical. So we see this in lots of places. Uh, in Acts 8, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So we see this, this concept of laying on of hands and it's referenced all over the place uh, in the scriptures as well as in the early church. Um, in Acts 19, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Uh, Hebrews 6 starts uh, with a, a quick discussion, again, about the laying on of hands. Um, this is kind of a, they're talking about the beginnings of the faith, right? So it says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, which is baptism, the laying on of hands, which is confirmation the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and God permitting we will do so right so literally it's saying let's move like, these are the beginning things right and so as Catholics we actually group the sacraments um, the first three sacraments are the sacraments of initiation they're the things that bring you into the faith they are first baptism which again makes that indelible mark on the soul um, followed by confirmation and uh, or, uh, communion right um, receiving Christ in, in, in the Eucharist and those three sacraments together make up what we call the sacraments of initiation. And at one point, it was actually very common to give them all at the same time. Um, in fact, it, it is still very common for converts coming into the faith uh, to receive all three of those at the same time, usually at the same mass, usually at the, um, at the, the Easter Vigil Mass. 
Um, now with little ba- with little babies in the Western world, for whatever reason, we've kind of broken these apart in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church. So it's very common for them just to receive baptism, and then when they reach six or seven to receive the Eucharist, uh, and then when they re- they get to I don't know eighth grade, tenth grade, senior year, whatever, um, to receive confirmation and it is oftentimes treated like a coming of age sort of thing kind of like a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah um but that's not the purpose of it originally in fact there's a big movement in the church right now to do what's called the restored order where you just give all three at the same time even to infants and there are other rites in the church which are just different ways of celebrating the, the liturgy um a lot of eastern rites they look like your, your orthodox churches but they're in communion with rome um they actually celebrate uh what's called the restored order and so i have uh friends who are um, Melkite Rite, um, Byzantine Rite, Maronite Rite, etc. And I know at least some of them, I know the Melkite Rite does, um, their kids got all three of the sacraments um, at, you know, whatever time, whenever they took them in to, to have them baptized, you know, in the first week or two of their life. Um, which, of course, causes some interesting snafus when they then go to a regular parish and their little two-year-old is coming up for communion and they're like, oh, you, you can't do this, um, which, you know, it is what it is. Uh, because it is so uncommon, it's hard to understand. And, and it, should you find yourself in this situation, obviously talk to the parish, uh, talk to the priest about it. Um, and they should be able to get you squared away. But again, we just see this all over the place. Uh, Ephesians 1, um, you also included with Christ when you heard the message, the gospel of salvation, when you believed you were marked with him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so um, we often hear of uh, confirmation being spoken of as being sealed. And in fact, I think it's in Revelation we read, well, I know it's in Revelation, I don't remember exactly where, uh, but the it's like the flying scorpions or whatever, there's, there's some sort of a critter that attacks the world, but the ones upon whom the seal had been set uh, they were not able to to harm, uh, and then Ephesians four, Paul says, "Do not do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Um, here we can see uh, the the early church, the martyr church. This is all pre Constantine. Uh, a lot of different quotes here. I'm not going to go too much into them. Um, here is one from Theophilus of Antioch, writing to a guy named Autolycus. Uh, and about your laughing at me and calling me Christian, you know not what you are saying. First, because that which is anointed is sweet and serviceable, this anointing, and far from contemptible. For what ship can be serviceable and seaworthy unless it's first cocked or anointed? Or what castle or house is beautiful and serviceable when it's not been anointed? And what man, when he enters into this life or into the gymnasium, is not anointed with oil? And what work has either ornament or beauty unless it is anointed and burnished? Then the air and all all that is under heaven is in a certain sort anointed by light and spirit. And are you unwilling to be anointed with the oil of God? Wherefore we are called Christians, excuse me, on this account, because we are anointed with the oil of God. So literally he's talking about this, this, this process of laying on of hands and, and anointing. And this is just how the church has celebrated it from the very beginning. Uh, Hippolytus of Rome uh, in a commentary on Daniel uh, gives a, a similar thing as well. Um, all of these things were figuratively represented in the blessed Susanna for our sakes. This is, uh, again, this is 204 AD, uh, and he's talking about something in, um, that, that many Protestants don't have in their Bible, but was accepted in the early, early church, uh, for our sakes that we now know, um, we now believe on God might not regard these things that are done now in the church as strange, but believe them all to have been set forth in figure 
by the patriarchs of old, as the apostle also says. Now these things happen uh, unto them for examples, examples, uh, and they were written for our instruction. Let's see. Bring me holy oil for faith and love. Prepare oil and uh, unguents. I don't actually know what that word. Uh, soft, greasy substance. Okay, there you go. I just learned something new. Uh, those who are washed. Um, but what were these soft, greasy, viscous substances? But the commandments of the Holy Word. What was the oil? But the power of the Holy Spirit. So I actually I jumped in before I should have jumped there. I thought I was reading the middle. Mia culpa. <laughs> my fault. My bad. Um, here we have Tertullian. After this, uh, when we have issued from the font, we are thoroughly anointed with a blessed unction, a practice derived from the old discipline, wherein uh, on entering the priesthood, when uh, then were wont to be anointed with oil from a horn ever since Aaron was anointed by Moses. Whence Aaron is called Christ from the chrism, he's talking about the Septuagint, uh, which is the unction, which when made spiritual, furnished an appropriate name to the Lord, because he was anointed with the Spirit by God the Father, as was written in Acts. For truly there gathered together in this city against thy holy Son, um, whom thou hast anointed. Thus, too, in our case, the unction runs uh, cornally, that is to say, on the body, but profits spiritually, in the same way as the act of baptism itself, too, is carnal, bodily, uh, in that we are plunged in water, but the effect is spiritual, in that we are freed from sin. So he's speaking about confirmation and baptism, uh, and again, they're oftentimes presented in this one step and then two step. We saw that in the scriptures uh, that I read earlier as well. Um, let's go on to Back to Pastor Mike, because again, I don't really need to dive into this too much. I've already spent a lot of time talking about it, but the point is you can find confirmation in the scriptures. You can find it in the history of the church. Confirmation in order to be saved? No, but it's a means of grace. Number five, the fifth one is matrimony, marriage. It is a big deal if you're Catholic to have a Catholic wedding because it is a sacrament. It is a means of grace. It is. And actually, um, both. Uh, so I talked about the sacraments of initiation, which are three. Uh, it is the baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. Um, there's actually four other sacraments and we put those into two groups as well the sacraments of healing we've already talked about in the last video that would be um confession which writes with god and 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 um last right actually he's going to talk about that a little bit in this one as well i think you mentioned in the last video um and then so we have the sacraments of healing and we have the sacraments of vocation um as they're often called i, I think a better term is actually the sacraments of service this is actually a word that the catechism uses to to talk about them and uh, the basic idea of the sacraments of, of service is you are being strengthened to carry out your mission to serve others, whether in marriage to serve your spouse and serve your children uh, and get them to heaven, or uh, as a pastor of a flock uh, to serve the You're trying to, you basically are trying to appease the wrath of God through these things. I don't like that phrase at all. Um, because at the end of the day, God is God of love. And, you know, this, there, there are, there are different points in scripture. And this is the thing about interpreting scripture in general, right? You, you are going to have to take, you know, uh, there, there'll be points in scripture that seem like the contradictions. So you have to understand one in light of the other. And how do you make the distinction of which one is the more important one to, to emphasize? Is it that God detests sin and, and his wrath is poured out on sin? Or is it that God loves? And I think that most Christians would understand and emphasize that the, the, the bigger truth there is that God is love. Because you can understand that and then understand what it means to, in a sense, anthropomorphize God uh, such that anything that is sin is just simply contrary to him. And so it would be the type of thing that would be, in human language, abhorrent to God. Something that he would, he would detest or hate because it simply 
movie is something that cannot be with him at the same time, which is why when we are in heaven, we are made perfect uh, because we, we will no longer be attached to sin because we can't be attached to sin uh, and be fully in communion uh, with God. And so, you know, Pastor Mike is using this, this, this language of, you know, we're appeasing a wrathful God. And that's not at all what we're doing as Catholics. In fact, uh, we are simply seeking to grow in holiness and be more fully confirmed to Christ and in being more fully confirmed to Christ, um, serve, uh, and, and, and help our, our spouse and our children to get to heaven. The sixth one is holy orders. Holy orders is kind of a confusing sacrament because you're like, how does, how do I do this? What are holy orders? Well, this is the priests, the bishop, the deacons, the offices in the church. In, in Catholicism, there's a strong difference between what they call the clergy and the laity. Laity is a fancy word for people, the normal people and the clergy or the, the official, like, we're the, we're the servants, you know, of God. Whereas in Christianity, we say, hey, we've all got gifts of the spirit. Mine happens to be teaching. Yours is different, but this, we're all on the same plane. I mean, we're all just, we're all believers. We're all disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you do the sacrament of holy orders? Well, you don't do it. You just need it to be done for you. You need these guys. Like, if I don't have a priest to invoke the body and blood of Jesus, then I don't get the Eucharist. If I don't have a priest to do confession and give me penance, then I'm not going to be able to have the sacrament of penance. So that's why you need holy orders. It enables all these other things. This is right. So what holy orders is, is the process. It, it also involves kind of like confirmation, the laying on of hands. Um, but we definitely see it uh, mentioned in scripture uh, and in the, the history of the church in, in a very clear way. You know, Jesus very clearly uh, pulls out his disciples. Uh, he gives them authority uh, that other people don't have. And they anoint other people. Um, we have all three uh, offices mentioned in scripture. You have the episcopoi, um, which are the bishops, the overseers. In fact, in Acts 1, when they appoint a successor to Judas, literally the words that, that Peter states is, let somebody else take his uh, his episcopoi, his episcopate, his his office, his 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 bishopric, right? That Literally the word that we use in English for episcopoi is just the bishop. That's what the word means. Um and we see that they appoint another guy named Matthias to, um, to to fill that spot, right? Which shows us that these these um, offices would continue very, very clearly in Scripture. Though you don't need Scripture to prove this, because you can also see it in history. Uh, and, and as Catholics, we even approach you approach Scripture as history first, and then you approach it as, as Scripture in a sense. We'll come back to that concept in a little bit. Um, but so, you know, Timothy, Titus, these are also uh, bishops, episcopoi, overseers uh, in the church. And so this is a very, very much a, a clear biblical model. And we see that uh, certain people are anointed, hands are laid on them, and they thereby become priests or presbyters, elders in the church, however you want to use that phrase. Uh, if you want to call them elders, that's fine. It's uh, one of the reasons we call them father, you know, spiritual father, uh, a phrase that Paul himself uses for himself uh, repeatedly. Um and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, point being, this is, we speak of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This is apostolic succession in a nutshell, right? Um, Jesus appoints men who then appoint men who then appoint men, who then appoint men, who then appoint men, and so on in an unbroken succession, stretching all the way back to the apostles so that every single bishop in the world uh, has for some has for the person who ordained him somebody uh, who was ordained by somebody who's ordained by who's near who's you know da, 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 uh, Jesus and or uh, one of the apostles right well and ultimately Jesus because it all goes back to the apostles this is where the Catholic Church has, has come along and said hey apart from the Catholic Church no one can be saved in fact I'll, I'll read to you some some uh, statements Pope Innocent I already dealt with this concept and there are th so with doctrine can develop uh 
it doesn't change. And and Pastor Mike's going to say this repeatedly. He's going to say that the Catholic Church has changed, has changed, has changed. No, no, no. It has not changed. It has safeguarded the truth. I guarantee you he believes things that no Christian believed uh, 600 years ago, <laughs> let alone 1,000 years ago, let alone 1,500 years ago, or, or almost 2,000 years ago, right? He has beliefs that are unique to him and his place and time uh, that the church does not have. And every single belief that the Catholic Church has, you can find rooted in Scripture, uh, oftentimes explicitly, um, very certainly implicitly, uh, as well as lived out in the early church as well. Um, but doctrine can develop. It can be refined. Um, again, I've given this example in the last video. Uh, transubstantiation is a term that didn't come around for 1,200 years, but it doesn't mean that all of a sudden Catholics started believing that the Eucharist was really Jesus only in the, the 13th century or whatever. Um, you know, it was literally the, the belief from the very beginning. I read you a quote from uh, one of the bishops of the church who was appointed by Peter, uh, uh, Ignatius of Antioch. And he's very, very clear that the, the, the Eucharist that we celebrate is the body and the blood of Jesus. He's not mincing words. In fact, uh, you can even look at secular sources. Uh, Plenty of the Younger was sent by uh, Trajan, the emperor, to look into this new weird cult of, of these Jews who followed this, this crucified carpenter, right? And he came back with this report that basically said and, and i'm going to trademark this right if, if this is a sweet sweet name if you want to come up with like some sort of like a christian metal band or something <laughs> he basically said they were incestuous cannibals because they called everybody brother and sister uh and they ate the flesh of their deceased master so literally like the the pagan understanding of these christians was they were incestuous cannibals uh so if you want a really sweet christian rock name there you go but i want to i want to nickel every time you use it so <laughs> sorry anyway um We'll let Pastor Mike continue. The third, in 1208 AD, he said, With our hearts we believe, and with our lips we confess, but one church, not that of the heretics, but the holy Roman Catholic and apostolic church, outside which we believe that no one is saved. And so, okay, I, I, I started on the path and I didn't finish. Doctrine can develop, which means we can refine it. We can understand it a little more nuanced. It doesn't mean that um, what is being stated here is incorrect. Extra ecclesia nullis outside of the church, there is no salvation. But it does mean that we understand it slightly differently. Um, it's still a true statement, but what we understand it or how we understand it uh, has shifted a little bit uh, such that it's still a, a true statement, but it's it's not... Um, the, the nuances is, is slightly different. So, and, and actually, it's a little bit different because writing at the time of the Reformation when people were, were, were fractioning the church, they were breaking the church uh, along these weird geopolitical lines, um, teaching different things. You know, look at Protestantism today. Again, it's a hodgepodge of, of beliefs. Uh, there are, uh, by some estimates, as many as 30,000 different denominations or more, uh, even if that's off by an, a magnitude of, of 10 or even 100. If there's 3,000 or even 300 denominations all teaching different things, that's a problem because Jesus says, I come to give you the truth and the truth will set you free. And so um, you're going to expect strong language from the time of like the Council of Trent and, and the popes around that that time, because they're being very, very clear uh, that to willfully separate from the church is, separating from the church is a grave matter. And again, for a mortal sin, a sin to be mortal, you have to have a grave matter, uh, as well as sufficient knowledge and free will. And the people who are separating clearly had a grave matter, and they clearly had free will, um, it would seem. But, uh, you know, whether they had sufficient knowledge, of course, 
course, is the type of thing that may still be their saving grace, you know, saved in a sense by ignorance. Because as Catholics uh, who know that God is love, we hope that everyone is saved. I hope to get to heaven and be able to embrace Martin Luther. Um, and here's something that's going to sound really radical, and I probably shouldn't say this on, on YouTube. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop there. Well, let's just say this. We should hope as Christians that everyone is saved. And that means everybody. That means the worst figures in history because they are still created in the image and likeness of God, who is love himself, who created each of us distinctly because we are a small image of him, even in someone like Hitler or Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot or Genghis Khan or I don't know, you know, whoever, right? In all of these, you know, big figures we think of that are that are bad guys, there is still the divine spark in them, right? They are still created in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, for them to go to hell would be a terrible thing. Um, so we ought to hope uh, for the salvation of all people. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved, right? Um, so, so don't confuse this message uh, with a message that says, well, everyone's going to be saved. That's a heresy, all right? Um, hell is a real place. Um, I'll have a whole class. In fact, I think I already put the class out on, on hell. If I remember, I'll put it here at 20 minutes. I should start making notes when I'm doing this so I know where to put things. Uh, 20 minutes hell. There we go. So if you look in the upper right corner, there should be a little i-card that pops out, or has already popped out probably, uh, uh, with the, the class on heaven, hell, and all stops in between which is a good listen. Um, anyway, so when we say outside of the church, there is no salvation, um, and that church is most specifically the Roman Catholic Church, which is to say the church founded by Jesus on Peter and the apostles, and Peter incidentally wound up in Rome. Um, we have good witnesses, uh, including Peter's letter himself, where he tells us he's writing from Babylon, uh, which was code word from Rome. Hence, we see John using that in, in the Revelation as well. Um, we have writings from the early church fathers that talk about Peter winding up in Rome as well. So we know that he wound up there, uh, and that's where his office wound up. And we have um, quotes from early church fathers that say, you know, because of this office and who founded it, um, all other churches must agree. I think it was Irenaeus that says that. I can find that quote for you. Um, but, you know, this is the, the the martyr church saying these sorts of things, right? We see uh, one of Peter's successors, Clement of Rome, um, Bishop of Rome, uh, correcting the Corinthians just like Paul, right? He's, he's admonishing them and expecting their obedience in a way that, uh, you know, if you didn't have and exercise some sort of a universal jurisdiction would seem really out of place. So uh, he's going to give you these quotes here. And they're going to sound, you know, very, very cut and dry on the first read. Uh, outside of the church, there's no, there's no salvation. The church is 100% copacetic with that. We're fine with that. That is 100% true and 100% correct. Um, but it doesn't mean that if you're not a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church in this life, you cannot be saved. Nor does it mean if you are a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church, uh, you are guaranteed to be saved, right? Uh, God can work outside of space and time, right? Um, he... he preaches to the gospel, the gospel to the spirits who are in prison in the days, uh, disobedient in the days of Noah in, in 1 Peter 3. Uh, he, he says to the thief on his right, today you'll be with me in paradise, which may have just been Abraham's bosom, but nevertheless, uh, he seems to obviously be able to work outside of the sacraments. He is the source of, of all grace, right? So he can dispense grace as he sees fit. And just as uh, the workers who worked at eight in the morning for a day's wage shouldn't have jeered and snubbed the people who came in at the last minute and got a full day's wage because it's up to the master of the harvest uh, to dispense with his goods as he sees fit. And if he's more generous to some, then, then so be it. We still ought to be excited and 
happy that someone in the last instance of their life repents. Because as he says about the prodigal son, there is more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents, right? Uh, the 99 righteous people or whatever. Um, anyway, so here he, again, he's going to give us some, some phrases that are supposed to sound like the church has changed its teaching. It's not, you just have to understand it in a, in a nuanced way and understand the church is being very heavy handed at this time because people are dividing up the church and, and breaking apart and teaching all sorts of weird, contradictory things. Pope Pius IX in 1854, after Vatican I said this, it must be held by faith that outside the apostolic Roman church, no one can be saved. And uh, that it's the only ark of salvation, and if you don't enter in, you're going to perish in the flood. And it goes on. Even in 1965, though, something very different happened. Vatican II happened, the new council, with sort of a new twist and spin on doctrine. And you and me, evangelical believers, were upgraded from anathematized heretics to separated brethren. And I love that. Right? It's it's a different way of looking at it. Um, and, and part of the issue is someone like Martin Luther, John Calvin's Vingley Knox, uh, whoever... Um, when they're making the decision to separate, they're making a decision to separate. But if you grew up in a evangelical free church or a Baptist or Episcopalian or Lutheran, you know, your, your parents were Lutheran parents before them were Lutheran, your parents before them were Lutheran going back, you know, 500 years. Uh, it's, it's now been just over 504 years or whatever, 503 years uh, since, uh, Martin Luther nailed his, his theses to the door. So you might have been in just a totally enculturated Lutheran setting or Anglican setting or Baptist setting or non-denominational setting or whatever, in which case you're not intentionally protesting anything. Very few people actually protest, uh, the Catholic church these days. Um, or if they do, they do sweat of ignorance, like, uh, like brother Mike here is, is doing. Uh, but even he, he's never been in the church. So he hasn't left the church and he only has, um, a very mistaken understanding as I'm hoping Again, that's the whole point of this video series is to show that his understanding of the church is deficient, severely deficient. Uh, and if you look at it correctly, uh, you can see that the church very much is the church founded by Christ on the apostles, uh, the preserver of, of the truth, uh, and is in fact more biblical than the Bible, but we'll get there. So that's nice. I've been, we've been given like upgrade, you know, you got upgrade. We're just separated brethren now. And there is now a shift in the Catholic church. Unfortunately, um, while uh, Pope Paul the sixth, you guys remember him? He was the Pope for most of our lives. Pope Paul the sixth. I think he means John Paul the second, but that's okay. Six. He delivered a message and elevated us to being separated brethren. Unfortunately, he also said Muslims worshiped the one true God along with Buddhists and he made other kind of strange pronouncements. Okay. So let's talk about the Muslims first. I think it was C.S. Lewis who made this statement, um, that being, he says a Christian doesn't mean you have to believe that everyone else is wrong. If you're an atheist, you have to believe everyone else is wrong, right? If you believe in any God whatsoever, you're just, you're flat wrong. Uh, as a Christian, we believe there is one God, one true God. And as a Christian, particularly as a Catholic, we believe we have the, the fullest understanding of who he is and access to everything he wants us to have in the sacraments and in the church and the scriptures and all that stuff, right? Um, so just assume with me for the minute that the Catholic church is true. Well, then that would mean that if you're not Catholic, if you're not in the church, you're, you're, you're not worshiping the one true God in a sense, but you might be very, very close. So for instance, um, you know, on, on a scale of truth, our, uh, 
if if the Catholic Church is 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 the whole shebang, right? The full deck. Um, then you might have, say, our our uh, Orthodox brothers and sisters who are only deficient in a few very minor things. In fact, we firmly believe and assert that they have full apostolic succession. They have all seven sacraments um, and everything else, but they just deny the primacy uh, of the Bishop of Rome, or they relegate it to a primacy of honor as opposed to a primacy of authority. Even though you can see it exercised in the early church and the church councils that that do in fact assert pre-Constantine uh, the authority of the bishop of rome um after them you might have some of the high church um protestants right who who still have a, a very very similar view uh you know the, the anglicans believe in episcopal or um apostolic succession they believe they have it i think they're wrong <laughs> many of them are wrong anyway but they believe they have it the lutherans as well and then you might get into some of the more mainline protestants or you know the more evangelical free church style or whatnot but they all still believe in the one true god who is jesus christ incarnate who suffered died rose from the dead for the sake of our sins um you know many of them have valid baptism uh, many of them have valid marriage because marriage as opposed to most of the other sacraments um is uh, a sacrament instituted between the couple, right? Um, it is it is a sacrament instituted by the the couple themselves, and so that's why even as Catholics, uh, marriages between Protestants are presumed to be valid sacramental marriages, um, and so on and so forth. So beyond that, you know, beyond our, our separated brothers, uh, the, the Protestants, maybe you have let's say these these weird non-christian christian sects like your mormons and your jehovah's witnesses who have a very deficient understanding of of who god is but they're still seeking to follow christ in some capacity even though they have a very faulty understanding after that might come monotheists who are you know followers of abraham so in which case the the jews would, would have a primacy of place right uh they seek to follow the one true god the god of abraham isaac and jacob um after them would come the muslims who again seek to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, but they definitely have a very deficient understanding of who he is. So much so that it could be said that the God that they worship is a is a different God or a false God. I, I understand the, the the desire to say that, and it, it could go either way, right? In their heart, they're seeking to worship the one true God. Um, they're gravely mistaken about who he is. And that's the thing about, about these sorts of mistakes. They actually might be innocent. You know, if they've never learned anything differently, if they've never known otherwise, then they're actually potentially blameless. And in fact, they may be seeking to do their best to love and honor God. And if that's what they believe, that's what they believe. And so, you know, the, the requirements for mortal sin may not be there when they do something that's absolutely terrible, um, like a suicide bombing or whatnot. Um I, again, the the law of the Lord is written on our hearts, and I'm not here to pass judgment in either way, condemning or or saving. That's totally up to God, and, and that's, that's Jesus on the judgment seat, right? Um, but and again, this is okay. So C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, the the last battle, has this really fascinating scene. And in, in, in Narnia, if you've never read it, the Kalormans are basically the Muslims, uh, literally from their mannerisms. They're they're kind of these de desert dwelling people. Uh, I think they wear turbans. Um, they they have a leader, the Tisrak, and they much like when uh, a Muslim will say Muhammad's name and then say peace be upon him, P B U H, whatever. Um, and uh, Oh, shoot, what do they say for, for God, for Allah? They say Allah, the merciful. Uh, shoot. Anyway, there's a little a little, a little phrase, an ejaculate is what it's called. <laughs> it's an awkward word um, that they that they say uh, after mentioning Muhammad and after mentioning God. Um, and anyway, so the, the, the Kalormans do this for uh, the Tisrak. May he live forever, right? Um, so literally, they're just they're, they're Muslims. And at one point, at the end of all things, in the last battle, one of the soldiers, uh, Emeth, 
he's a Clorman soldier who served the, the wicked god Tash, which is basically Allah, his whole life. And he winds up meeting Aslan, which is the lion, who represents Jesus. J.R. Tolkien hated uh, allegory, and he always told Lewis, I guess one of his, one of his qualms with Lewis is, he says, why do you keep dressing Jesus up like a lion? <laughs> which is, I don't know, I, I get a kick out of that. Anyway, but at one point, Ameth meets uh, Aslan. And the, the conversation, uh, I probably could look it up for you as well, but I'm just going to give you the, the, the nuts and bolts because I'm already half an hour into this video. Uh, he, he says to uh, Aslan, oh, you know, lion, the, the lion should swallow me whole because I've served Tash my whole life. And, and Aslan says, no, you haven't. Uh, you've served what you sought in honesty, in earnest to, to serve me. And he says, you know, Tash and I, uh, the devil and I, <laughs> are so diametrically opposed that nothing good can be done. Nothing truly good can be done in the name of the devil. And anything you did good, even if you did it in the name of this devil, this this demon, this, this Tash, you actually did it in my name, whether you realize it or not, because you were seeking to do it that way. Likewise, anything wicked and evil done in my name is not done in my name, because those things are so abhorrent and repugnant, uh, so contradictory to my nature, that nothing... Uh, evil can actually be done in my name. It's all done uh, in the name of, of the wicked one, right? Um, and so Ameth winds up finding mercy uh, as he's facing the judgment seat uh, of, of the lion. And I think that's a really beautiful way of kind of understanding. I'm not saying you should take your faith from fiction, but Lewis obviously is trying to write Christian fiction in a way that explains the realities uh, of the world around us and explains how a God who is love and who requires us to know him and to love him nevertheless can work work with us wherever we are, because that's his desire, right? God so loved the world. He loved everyone in the world that he gave his only son. Uh, and, and we're told in multiple places that he wills the salvation of all people. And if God is omnipotent and he wills it, he must at least make it possible. That doesn't mean everyone is saved because salvation, again, is a two-way street. Um, so anyway, he's, and as far as, you know, so after the Muslims might come just random deists, uh, in this, this hierarchy of truth, <laughs> after the deists might come polytheists, right? Cause they at least accept that there's a God or gods or something like that. And after polytheists, maybe you're Hindus and whatnot, you know, your naturalist religions, uh, shamanism, etc. After that you get atheists and even the atheists, and he's going to mention, um, Pope Francis saying, who am I to judge, right? Even the atheist is usually trying to pursue the truth. And again, God will meet us where we are uh, at the end of all things. Uh, we don't know what that's going to look like, and we don't presume to judge. Um, and uh, so I'm not going to presume to judge, but we know that God is love, and he wills the salvation of all. If he wills it, he makes it possible. That's that's as far as that needs to go. Pronouncements without actually defining what they meant or answering any questions about what they meant. So it was like, are you saying the Buddhists are safe? Like they can be, oh, it just floated away and didn't really tell anybody what that meant. So this is the new... Um, they could be saved not by virtue of being a Buddhist any more than Amath was saved by virtue of worshiping Tash, but by virtue of how they have cooperated with the grace that God has given them up to that point. Direction of the Catholic Church. Remember, Catholicism is changing, changing, changing. Well, it changes with the times. And right now, under Pope Francis, the newest pope, Catholicism is getting more and more what's called ecumenical, or the idea... It doesn't change, and especially in the core elements of the faith. Nothing, nothing changes, right? The belief has always been that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, died on the cross, left us the church, uh, gave us the sacraments, the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus, right? The, the changes are when someone comes along and says, oh, it's just a symbol. Oh, we don't really believe that. You know, how could you believe that? You know, he is bucking over you know 2000 years almost uh of of christian belief 
coming up here in about 13 years, we'll be on the 2000th anniversary of the church, more or less, depending on how you want to date it. Obviously, we might be off a year or two, but we're very, very close to the 2000th year of, of the church. And you have, on the one hand, the, the Catholic faith, which is teaching the same things. You, you can find the same teachings of the church this year uh, that you found 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Some of them will have developed. Some of them will have been refined. But you can find those beliefs stated before they're pronounced in a council in some capacity. The idea here is to, to um, rather than go, us four and no more, like, let's tighten up our reins. We're the Catholics. That was the last pope, actually. Pope um, Benedict the Sixteenth, I think it was, and he was Bishop Ratzinger before he became Pope, and he retired very shortly after becoming the Pope. He was actually a theologian, and he was kind of like shoring up, hey, no, this is what we believe, this is what Catholicism is. But then he retired, and Pope Francis came in, and Pope Francis, kind of, he's not really into theology that much. He's like just throws open his arms, and someone says something about atheists, and he goes, eh, who am I to judge? And like never in the history of the Catholic Church has a Pope said, who am I to judge? Because that's kind of what it means to be Pope, right? <laughs> no, that's not. It, 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 nobody judges. The judgment is up to Christ. Now, what the Church can do is through. Uh, a process of investigation and confirmation through miracles, which happen in the church on a regular basis, uh, like miraculous healings, uh, people who can't walk, walking, uh, etc. We can we can have certainty that certain saints are in heaven, right? That's why we have canonized saints, saints who are listed saints. They all have miracles attributed to them, etc. Um, so the church will make pronouncements that way, but we never make pronouncements. The church never makes pronouncements the other other way and says this person is certainly in hell, even about. Some Someone like Judas, who very probably is in hell because Jesus says about him, it would have been better for that man had he never been born. And if we're designed for heaven at the end of the day, that's our goal. That's where we're supposed to be. If you wind up there, I find it hard to to comprehend or make sense of a statement that says it would have been better for you never to have been born. Now, it still could make sense. He still could be in heaven potentially right um just as a this is a thought experiment this isn't catholic teaching itself uh the the practice i'm giving you is but um, it's not that jesus is in heaven or hell um but the 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 concept simply is the fact that we can hold out hope even for someone like that because it would have been better if jesus wouldn't have been betrayed right in in, in a real sense it would have been better had that not happened right uh it would have been better for that stain to have not been been upon him right um so, so even even some like Judas, we could hold out hope for. I find it doubtful. Most Christians, our history, have found it doubtful. Uh, Dante places him squarely in the mouth of Satan, at the bottom of hell, being chewed up along with uh, Brutus and Cassius, the the other great betrayers. You know, pride and, and betrayal are the, the 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 bottom rung of hell, basically. So, or the, the 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 hell goes down. So, like the lowest rung is the highest rung, basically. It's the the worst things in hell. Um, anyway, let's continue. And so people are, but he's not explaining his statements. He just makes these statements. He's really trying hard. And Pope Francis, to be honest, is a little wishy-washy in things. The Pope is not infallible in everything that he states. In fact, very, very rarely is the Pope infallible. He's still a figurehead of the, the church. He's still a visible leader. Um, and he is still the successor of Peter. All of those things are true. But it doesn't mean that everything he states is, is good or perfect or infallible or anything along those lines, right? That's just not what it means. To bring Protestants back into the Catholic Church, uh, Pope Francis has declared recently, the Reformation is over. <laughs> so the Reformation's over, the, the Protestantism is unnecessary, and, and he's, he's really reaching out. He's actually making some Catholic theologians very upset. He's reaching out and doing things like he just recently named a building um, in, in Rome after Martin Luther. This just happened. I mean, that's not an infallible anything. That's just something he's doing, and he's doing it in the name of ecumenism because he's trying to heal the divisions in the church, which are a scandal. 
And in 2017, him and some other people are supposedly, we'll see if this happens, going to sign an agreement that says that they all have basically the same gospel. I think he's referring to a joint statement by the Lutherans and the Catholics on justification by faith alone. And the statement basically reads, as long as you understand it in this particular capacity, uh, then we're, we're, we're in agreement, right? So it's, it's, it's trying to, to take two almost contradictory understandings and find a, a middle ground where they could both make an assertion that, okay, I believe this statement. And the point there being to bring out dialogue, right? To bring us closer together because it is a scandal for the body of Christ to be torn apart into hundreds of different pieces, teaching different things. Which we know after you've gone through the series that we don't, we don't have the same gospel. So it's basically, a, it's built on a lie. Um, now I hope that we can have the same gospel, but they need to come out and say, ah, forget all this. Here's the gospel. Jesus saves. I mean, they need to come out and just make it about Jesus. And then we can say we have the same gospel. And that would be. It's been about Jesus for almost 2000 years. Awesome. That would be awesome. Because I think the church could be changed and it could experience radical change. But Pope Francis is trying to bring everybody in, ignoring the differences rather than fixing them. And that's the problem with the ecumenical movement is the whole point of that uh, joint declaration is not uh, to, to ignore the differences, but to find a way to reconcile the differences. We pretend we agree when we really don't, when we really don't. And, um, and according to Jesus, this gospel is an essential issue and we can't. Now, this is a legitimate concern, right? We shouldn't just pretend there's not problems. Uh, and one could even make the statement that or, or make the claim that, that the Pope is doing this, right? Maybe he's making a mistake uh, in his form of outreach. Peter, uh, you know, did the same thing, right? Peter made a mistake. Uh, he, he feared the, the circumcised, in, in the words of, of St. Paul, uh, when the Jews were around, he would, he would not hang out with the Gentiles. And that was a mistake, and Paul rebukes him, right? Um, and that's a good thing that Paul did. And that doesn't mean Peter was teaching anything incorrectly. It just means he wasn't living up to his calling in that brief moment. Pretend to agree, if we don't. So that's holy orders. Uh, the seventh and final of these seven sacraments is the anointing of the sick or the dying, or you may have heard the phrase, last rites giving someone their last rites. This is to resolve mortal sins and hopefully to help them avoid purgatory or at least avoid as much purgatory. So someone's dying, the priest comes in and they're just like, hey man, you could get me maybe years, cut off my purgatory sentence, do a ritual over me, and then um, yeah, that's the last one. Another means of grace. Now speak. He's about to go into purgatory. Um, I'm going to actually put a link up here. I'm going to stop this video now that it's 40 minutes in. Um, but I'll start up here at 3825 uh, next time. And uh, so I'll put a note here for purgatory as well at 38. So I'll make sure that I have uh, both of those uh, linked to this video for you. Um, anyway, I'm pretty sure he's going to go into purgatory at this point. So this is a good stopping point, and then we'll we'll jump in here because purgatory is one of those issues that people have a lot of questions about. But again, I have a whole video about this. I actually have multiple videos because Jesus uh, pretty clearly teaches that purgatory is a thing. So does St. Paul, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but we'll come back to that idea later. So let me know if you have any questions. Obviously, again, if you if you have any thoughts, comments, or concerns, leave them down below. Um, and that being the case, uh, God bless you. God love you. And see you next time. Bye-bye.